Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Glad you're with us this week. And on the program this time, we're glad to welcome two of the Defense Department's top technology officials, both of whom are brand new to the job, at least these particular jobs. Later on in the show, we'll talk with Jay Bonsey. He took over as the Air Force's new chief technology officer in August. First up, though, we talk with Heidi Hsu. She was sworn in just this past June as the new Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering. Our listeners who followed defense acquisition over the years will remember that she also served as Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology during the Obama administration. You might also remember that the Research and Engineering Office itself is pretty new. The R&E post was created in 2017 after Congress split the former position of Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition, Technology, and Logistics into two separate organizations. Ms. Hsu talked with me during this year's Association of the U.S. Army Conference in Washington. Mishu, thanks for taking time for this, and, and I'll just start by asking you to talk us through a little bit of what you see as your main priorities for the office. You've only been in the seat for about two and a half months now, I think, as we sit down to record. Um, so, so take us through what you think are the most important things to get done near-term, mid-term as Undersecretary. I will say one of the key things that I'm focused on is the Innovation Steering Group. This is a group that the Deputy Secretary of Defense stood up before I came into the office. And within the first hour of my uh, meeting with DepSec Dev, she told me, this is uh, your group and you're chairing it. <laughs> so Congratulations. <laughs> obviously, it's high importance to me. <laughs> okay, So there's several things we're doing as a part of, of the uh, innovation steering team. Let, let me just sure. kind of walk you through it. Okay, One of them is the radar concept. Uh, that I've talked about, the rapid experimentation, prototyping activity mm-hmm. we're doing. So what we've done is work very closely with the joint staff to understand what are the joint capability gaps that we have okay, and tie it to specific scenarios and work very closely with the COCOMs to understand, okay, these are definitely the specific capability gaps. From that, we went to each service and say, do we have products that can close this capability gap? Okay, and these are products that's not uh, yet to be developed. These are product are technology readiness uh, levels of five to seven. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they already exist in terms of prototype. They can bring it and demonstrate it. Okay. Uh, we received 203 ideas in a period of five weeks. (laughs) So there was a lot of white paper that my team had to go through. So they rack and stacked and basically recommended the top 32 projects be funded. So we've briefed out to DepSecDev, the vice chairman, as well all the co-coms and joint services in all the services. We've briefed what we're planning to do Okay, and we were given the thumbs up. So one of the key things that we're doing now is doing the detailed planning. This is an exercise we will be conducting in FY23. So all the details of planning will be done in FY22 to enable the execution in FY23. Okay. So that's one of the, uh, the uh, main thrust areas that we're doing. Mm-hmm. The other thing uh, to note 
uh, this Raider's concept of rapid experimentation prototype is going to continue on. So it's not just a one-time event. This is something we'll want to do every single year. Pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. okay. the so on a cycle, in other yes. words, with all of those same elements, go out to the services, ask for what your prototypes are that might fill these gaps, and then go experiment. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Repeat. And the other thing to realize that we may go to a different COCOM that may have a slightly different requirements, mm -hmm. right? Slightly different capability gaps. And from that, we will be requesting opening up to FFRDCs as well as other companies to propose their prototypes to, to uh, demonstrate and experiment. Okay. How, how open can you be with those joint requirements? Are they basically fully open so that uh, anyone can see them, or do you imagine? They're classified. You know, okay, so they will be classified. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. Just want to get that clear. Yeah, and even from the proposal we receive, they span from unclassified to secret to top secret to compartment, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? But uh, yeah, but the thing that's exciting, three of those projects are actually joint projects with our allies. Mm. Okay, so we definitely want to partner with allies and partner nations to be able to deliver capabilities much quicker in this type of environment. Right. So this is just one of the activities we have ongoing. Uh, second activity that we have undergoing under the same umbrella is we're looking across the entire DOD to look at all the different innovation activities that's ongoing. Right. So I'd like to get my arms around just how many innovative activities do we have, organizations do we have. Right. So we're asking a question like, what is your mission? Okay. What have you procured? What capabilities do these products have? Uh, what have you transitioned into the hands of the warfighter? Right? And which company are you buying these products from? Because you really want to share that information across. Sure. So we're not reinventing the wheel every time. Mm -hmm. right? So we're in the process of collecting that information right now. The second piece I would like to understand is what are the best practices? Are there best practices within each organization we can then share across the board, right? That would be valuable. Okay. Best practices meaning things like procurement lead time, how quickly are you able to get things in the door, how, are you able, how quickly are you able to produce a successful prototype, what, what sort of best practices are you looking for? So, for example, when I went down to visit Army's Rapid Capability Critical Technology Office, one of the things that they talked about, they've had... Uh, three innovate uh, th three industry days every six months okay and they've learned and adapted every industry day first time they just say do you have some really innovative ideas mm. come tell us what you have it was completely broad and wide open now by the third industry day they've decided to scope it down they went they went to two program executive offices, two PEOs, and said, what are the capability gaps that you would like to have? From that, they went to small businesses and said, do you guys have products or ideas that can fulfill these capability gaps? Then they received the white papers, right? Then they reviewed the white papers along with the actual users and the program managers and the requirements people, right? Uh, they skinny that big long list down to digestible, I think it was like 42. Mm -hmm. Then they funded 
each of these 42 companies $5,000. Think about it, for a small company on tight budget, this is great. You, you're giving them travel fund, right? right? <laughs> so this is like the lessons learned that I find very valuable to have, okay? And then each of these small companies get 30 minutes to pitch their ideas. And you have users, program managers, um, the requirements people, all they're listening to their ideas. Then they do a down select to the final whatever X number of companies that they want to give funding to, to develop. That's a very methodical process. It's a good process. Okay, so I was very happy to hear that. So I'm interested in looking at every different innovative organization, see how do they operate? What process do they have? What are the lessons learned that they have, right, that they can share across the board? And, and this discovery process that you're, go, you're going through, because you're right, I mean, there's been a lot of organizations that have sprung up in the past decade or so that have the word rapid or innovation in them. Is this survey process going to incorporate things that aren't strictly in the R&E portfolio, but might be owned by some other DOD entity? So R&E looks across every service. So we will, we've already gone to the Air Force, the Navy, uh, the Marines, the Army, and we look, uh, also went to DIU, SCO, try to understand what process they utilize and what company have they gone out to, what capability have they demonstrated, right? So all of those things will be pulled together. We like to create a, basically, you know, a, a database so I can tap into mm -hmm. if, if I can actually Google for specific capability, right, or a product, I can find it. Right now, you're making a zillion phone calls, right? <laughs> yep. And is that is that is that technically part of the innovation steering group yes. or separate effort? Okay, so it does fall a within that group. Absolutely. So, so I said there's three pieces going on. That was the second piece I talked Got about. Got it. Okay. Okay. The third piece we're doing, we're looking at across all the services laboratories and and find out what type of lab equipment do they need? Uh, have we underinvested in laboratory? Laboratories funding comes from, uh, they're funded out of MilCon, right? And typically, they're the bottom of the priority list. They don't compete well, okay? So it's very important for us to take a look at, um, if you want the best researchers in the, in the country, you want the best lab equipment and the best facility. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, who's going to come here, <laughs> right, right? Right. So we're, we're taking a look at where are we under-investing? and then what are the areas we absolutely need to invest in and what are the implications if we don't invest in these lab equipment and facilities. Right. Heidi Hsu is the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering. More of our conversation from this year's AUSA conference in just a minute. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we get back to our conversation with Heidi Hsu, the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering. And as we've been discussing, she's just now starting an effort to get a better grasp on the various research and prototype programs underway across the vast DoD S&T landscape. Ms. Hsu spoke with me at the annual AUSA conference in Washington. 
the last last time you were in the building, there, there really were some painful effects from the Budget Control Act and sequestration. I think R&D really took a big brunt of that. Some of the outside studies I've seen from the think tanks tend to suggest that mm-hmm. things like system development demonstration kind of stayed flat even after budget started to recover, but prototypes really exploded. So as part of this effort in the innovation steering group to try and get a handle on what all of those are, was there a sense that there's a lot of prototypes flowering out there, but we don't necessarily know what they're all for or how they might work together? I think part of the reason uh, that we're focusing on it's not, one thing to think about is every service is focused on prototyping their own yeah. items. We're focusing on the joint fight. Okay. Are the capability gaps, when you cut across the services, that's missing, mm-hmm. right? And are the things that we can demonstrate across the board to close the joint war fighting capability gaps? Okay, so that's the piece that we're focusing on in terms of prototyping and demonstrating. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely makes sense. Okay. Um, wh- what do you expect the outcome of one year of these cycles to actually be? Do you, do, do, you, do you find homes for hopefully all 32 of these projects in a program of record or some proportion of them? Yeah, it's a great question. So what we're planning to do is once we f- finish the uh, exercise, let's put it that way, mm-hmm. uh, in FY23, we have the co-coms and services there evaluating the utility, okay? They're the ones who say, hey, this is really great. I need this. And then we have, we have to look at the transition path that we have. We could either go to rapid, I could either leave behind the products for the co-com, right? We could go into rapid, uh, rapid fielding, right? Or else they could say, hey, I really like this, but I'd like to add the following capability into here. Then we can go through one more iteration of adding additional capabilities in. Or we could say, go into a mid-tier acquisition, right? Or you could say, well, this is nice, but I really don't need it. Mm -hmm. That's okay too, right? So I think what we're, uh, part of the thing is learning what are the utilities out of these prototypes that we have, okay? And get a transition as quickly as possible, right? If you, if you look at what our adversaries are doing, they're doing rapid prototyping, rapid fielding, rapid operationalizing the prototypes, right? And we need to be at that pace. Um, since you brought up middle tier, let me just ask you, again, this was one of the things that really wasn't around to nearly the degree it was the last time you were in the building, both middle tier of acquisition, and the greatly expanded use of other transaction authorities. How, how useful do you expect those to be in the coming years in the R&D and S&T space? I mean, the, the, the trajectory of the numbers is just astronomical in terms of how much more the department is using them. What's your view on what the proper place is for those sorts of acquisition vehicles? So definitely OTA gives you a lot more flexibility than the traditional FAR process, right? I think uh, if you look at uh, Army's really jumped on the bandwagon mm-hmm. in terms of leveraging the OTA just because they want to move faster. Okay, There's definitely areas in which OTA makes a lot of sense. Uh, there's areas that OTA probably doesn't make sense. If you're designing, developing the next generation platform, <laughs> right? probably not an OTA, right? <laughs> okay, But there's a lot of things you can put on OTA to move faster. 
uh, mid-tier acquisition, um, I think was a result one of my complaints up to the hill back when I was in the Pentagon. I said, look, the, the, the acquisition process is too linear, too risk averse. It takes too long. Yeah. By the time we get our weapon systems out, it's obsolete, right? right? So is, we need to accelerate that. And uh, the Hill actually came back with the mid-tier acquisition process to enable us to design and develop and fuel much more quickly. Makes sense. Um, let's talk about some of the workforce issues that, that I, I know you're focused on as well. Where, where do you see the, the gaps, the opportunities throughout the department in the R&D space? Again, both in terms of opportunities, what, what you can do and, and what you need to do. I think the biggest gap we probably have is the area of AI, <laughs> AI, ML, autonomy, mm -hmm. as well as software engineering, right? Uh, we're short of talent in that area. That's because if you look at the commercial world, they can dangle much bigger salary, right? So this is where we're really competing for talent. And tell me about some of the things the department is working on to help tackle those things or ideas that you might have that haven't been implemented yet. Well, I tell you, one of the things that we're doing, I think it's a, it's a great uh, path, what DOD has implemented, is basically uh, they are funding your undergraduate, master's, or PhDs. And from that, depending on the number of years they've paid for your education, you will agree to work in one of the DOD labs. Hmm. Let's say we pay four years for your college degree, you may decide to give us four years working in our lab, right? That's a great trade. You get a free education and do some cool work afterwards, right? Being employed. So we've done that. Uh, we have uh, over uh, 400 scholarships uh, to date. Okay, so it's very positive because what you want to do is grow the STEM talent, mm -hmm. right? You want to encourage them to go in, go after the degrees that we are interested in. Right. Okay. Has that been in place for long enough that we have any kind of sense whether those folks that come in for a period of obligated service tend to stay in or we just don't know yet? We don't. It's too early. Yeah. But at least we're on that path, which I think is an important thing to do. Right? And it might be that the more important thing anyway is to build the talent so that it's a resident in the United States, period, right? Exactly. It almost, you know, to me, we would love to have one within DOD. Let's say after four years of experience, even if you leave and go to industry, uh, uh, go to industry we still benefit. The yeah. U.S. benefits, right? Yeah. Because we've increased the number of people in the STEM education. So, so it's very positive. You talked a bit before in the context of the joint warfighting experimentation that you, that you envision the participants going beyond just the military services, going out to FFRDCs and companies. Mm -hmm. Talk with me a bit about more broadly how you see, who you see the participants being or ought to be in the DOD research and engineering ecosystem. Yeah, so one of the things that I've done is uh, last month I actually had a session uh, with all the CEOs of all the FFRDCs. So literally, I spent an hour and a half in a telecom with them to kind of talk about my vision, where I want uh, R&E to head towards. And also I mentioned to them, here's a list of my priority areas. Okay. And I also would like them to collaborate closer together because if we collaborate together, think of the Manhattan Project, how we were amazingly able to, to, to build things so rapidly rather than I'm going to compete you against you against you, right? Right. So 
by the way, all the CEOs are very excited. Okay, so uh, I plan to have quarterly uh, strategic meetings with FFRDC CEOs to bring them closer uh, and share uh, share insights and the toughest technical challenges that we're facing. Okay, so that's one aspect. The other, uh, second thing is I'm reaching out to small businesses. I did a, uh, a Fed Supernova, uh, which uh, like 1,800 people calling in, right? And again, I talked about my, my technical priority areas. And I'm doing uh, visits here within AUSA, mm -hmm. okay? Talking to companies, and when I hear companies that need tie-in into the DOD, I give them my card to help them to do the linkage back in. So I'm trying to reach out much broader uh, to basically open the door and understand that we are interested in, part, uh, in their participation uh, with the DOD. Okay. Well, one of the things you talked about earlier at the conference is that something you observed when you were outside in industry for a bit is there are just way too many entry points into DOD, some of which can be successful entry points and some not. Um, any, any thoughts on, I, I understand this convening role that you're talking about here and that mm -hmm. sounds really important, but, mm -hmm. but how do you make it clearer to industry, this is where you go when you have solution X, this is where you go when you have solution Y, and make the department more receptive to those things wherever the appropriate entry point is. So this is exactly the journey that I'm on, <laughs> right? First is figure out what are all the innovative organization within the DOD doing? Yeah. What is their mission, right? What is their purpose? What is their strategy? What is their process, right? And what have they already bought? And what, what has actually transitioned to hand of the warfighter rather than interesting prototypes, okay? So once we get all of that together, we can go to the next step. Namely, how do I share across the entire department this is what we already have bought, right. <laughs> right? And here are the companies that's developing X, Y, Z capabilities, right? Right now, uh, you have to make phone calls to try to figure out who has what, right? Yeah. And so, so the step of, uh, of figuring out what you have, uh, pulling the information, a database together to share across the board will be or speak volumes, right? Then we need to figure out, is there specific entry points we need to highlight even more to the small businesses, okay? So stepwise process we're going through. By the way, we're also engaging very closely with small business, uh, the technical council, okay? Uh, there's a technology council, small business technology council. We've actually, I got my lead to uh, spend some time with them to understand where are the impediments in terms of doing business with the DOD. Another short break, and we will be back with more of our conversation with Heidi Hsu, the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, in just a moment. You're listening to On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu.
Thanks for listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. A few minutes left with our conversation at the annual AUSA conference with Heidi Hsu, the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, about her priorities as the department's top S&T official. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, this is her second tour as a top Pentagon official. She served as the Army's top acquisition official during the Obama administration. This next question may be unfair since you've only been in the job for two and a half months, but but you, you worked under the old structure with ATNL before the division between research and engineering and acquisition and sustainment. Any observations you have about the extent to which that new org chart has gelled and how the two offices work together so that there's not a hard barrier between research and engineering and throwing things over the fence to the acquisition team? Because that I think that was never really the vision, right? Right. So it definitely created, I, I call it a cleavage, right, <laughs> when you cut the baby in two, okay? So one of my priorities is make sure that I work collaboratively with ANS because it's ridiculous not to. Right. Because otherwise, all the research and engineering within R&E will never transition, right? So we have to have tight linkages with ANS, and that's one of my commitments uh, uh, to work close to ANS. So one of the things I'm doing now, I have bi-weekly meetings with ANS. So literally, we sit down and have a dialogue, right? What are the things uh, that's on your list, the things that we need to work on? And uh, I work very collaboratively with ANS. Okay? So I think uh, we're going to try to make the two organizations uh, link back together as tightly as we can. And just to raise one example of why that kind of relationship might be important, I mean, just to repeat the truism that 70% of DOD costs for a weapon system are in sustainment. If there was a hard barrier there, there would be a temptation for the R&E side of the house to think, well, if I invest in something that's going to have high long-term sustainment costs, not my problem. That's ANS's problem. So what are you doing mm-hmm. in, in the stages of the acquisition process that you're responsible for mm-hmm. to lower those costs over time? Are there things that you can do and are doing? Oh, absolutely. So one of the things I want to do is create a director for sustainment technology, right? To drive down the sustainment costs. I also want to create a position. So uh, one person or one director who is responsible for modular open architecture, right? Because that's sort of, sort of the first step. If you have a modular open architecture, guess what? I can compete elements of the architecture. Anytime you're doing competition, price goes down. Price doesn't go up, <laughs> right? And you know what? You can get the latest technology in quicker. Okay. Um, leveraging additive manufacturing, right? Uh, leveraging the open architecture. There are so many things we can do to reduce the cost in the sustainment area. Uh, Open architecture has been discussed for as long as I've been paying attention to DOD, and it seems like there's been some progress creating those architectures, but it seems like one of the problems is there's, they're modular, but there's a lot of architectures, and they're not modularly compatible with each other in in all ways. Do you see that as an issue, and are there ways to to tackle that? Yeah, so it'll be mission impossible to create one single open architecture for all services, okay? So the critical element is, is there an interface defined? I can then stitch together things that's inherently incompatible, right? And DARPA has already created a program called Stitches, doing exactly that. 
stitch together disparate systems so they actually can communicate with each other. In our last few minutes here, I want to make sure we talk about software since it's at the core of just about everything right now. How are you thinking about software in, in the R&E world? So this is great. You know, in the commercial world, software has migrated so fast. Right? In the DoD world, they're starting to adapt some of the commercial best practices, right? But lagging behind the, the true software world. So one of the positions I'm creating in the modernization is a processing and software lead that can tap into the latest research. Okay. The other thing is uh, Carnegie Mellon University Software Engineering Institute. Uh, they're focusing on the future of software. Right? This is where we want to drive the technology on the future of software into what we're doing now instead of waiting until we develop something and then try to glue things together at the last minute, right? right? So those are all really important things that we're nurturing. And it, it seems to me that you know the, the greater importance of software also brings in another kind of key relationship into this space, which is the CIO's office, who I think I just hi who, who just hired a chief software officer. Is, is there an increasing interplay with, with that office in, in the acquisition world that you're saying? Absolutely. So I also have uh, bi-weekly meetings with the CIO because we've got to stay linked, yeah. right? Uh, the stuff that they're doing and the stuff we're doing has to be compatible, <laughs> right? So John Sherman and I have had uh, bi-weekly meetings and we sit on uh, some of the similar councils, the Cyber Council, the Assure PNT Council. So we are staying connected. And there's this, this idea that's been, I think we're about to enter year three of the idea of a single appropriation for software, which I know some programs have found very helpful where you don't have to think about different colors of money. Is this, you know, is this procurement? Is this O&M? Is this RDT&E? Have you thought yet about whether that's ripe for expansion into other programs? Because it is still very much in a pilot stage at this point. I think it's a great pilot because... Now we can move because it's very hard. If you think of software, the commercial world is doing continuous development, continuous testing, right? right? This is not something traditional weapon systems do, right? right. Uh, uh, weapon systems are so linear. So having this colorless money enable them to move much faster. I would love to be able to have a part of that in the R&E world so we can do rapid development and, and um, rapid searching of capabilities rather than the linear fashion we have. So one of the key things I think we need to reform is the PPBE process, mm. right? It's too sequential, too linear, and too old-fashioned, right? Work really well uh, if you're in the slow pace, very methodical, risk-averse pace, but in today's world, it's got to change. Can you give me a quick example of how the color of money problem intrudes in, in, into the R&E world outside of software? It's, it's very clear to me that it doesn't work for software, but, but where is it an, an issue in your space outside of that? Yeah, so that's a great question. So this is a discussion I've had with SecDef. Uh, let's say you, you find a great prototype someplace. You want to buy it? Well, did you have the foresight two years ago to plant it into your palm? If you didn't, guess what? You have no authority to buy it, right? There's no appropriated money. Because it's a new start, it. is that it's the issue? It's a new start, okay. right? So now let's say you're going to plan it into your palm. Well, in two years' time, 
maybe you'll get the money, right? So by that time you get it, the technology is already several years old, right? It just doesn't make sense, right? So in this world in which competition is key against your adversaries, you've got to change. Heidi Hsu is the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering. She was good enough to give us a good chunk of her time to talk with us about her priorities at the annual AUSA conference in Washington. One more break, and when we come back, we'll talk with Ms. Hsu's Air Force counterpart, also new on the job, Jay Bonsey, the Air Force's Chief Technology Officer, joins us in just a moment. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Servio. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. And to wrap up the show this week, we're joined by the Air Force's new Chief Technology Officer. Jay Bonsey took his first government leadership position just in August, following a career as a technology executive at Akamai. He takes over for Frank Konetsky, the former longtime CTO who retired earlier this year. Mr. Bonsey joins us now to talk a bit about the technology challenges he sees for the Air Force and what he hopes to achieve in the position. Jay, thanks for taking the time and congratulations on the new position. Let, let's talk a bit about what the job actually is because you'll, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think the Air Force CTO position is really codified or constrained by statute in any way. So, so you and the Air Force and the Air Force CIO have a fair amount of latitude to decide what the job is. So what's the answer to that question as far as, as you see it so far? What, what is the position of Air Force CTO and, and how do you want to tackle it? Uh, first off, thank you. Um, it's, a, it's a great opportunity. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, the, I truly believe the Air Force is kind of at the right place at the right time, um, both from a structural perspective, but also a cultural perspective to help um, drive the department forward. I'm working on some incredible things that are um, going to change the way that we respond uh, to problems in the world. Um, and it's a, an incredible honor to be selected for it. Um, that said, you're correct. Um, the CTO position here um, inside of the CIO office or SAFCN, um, as it's kind of known, uh, is uh, fairly open-ended. Um, what we've chosen to focus on, um, however, is to create uh, a kind of a cohesive technical roadmap uh, for enterprise IT across the Air Force. And the goal is to have that roadmap allow us uh, so that all the different technical implementations that are happening across the department uh, for enterprise IT will kind of know their left and their right. Um, this is gonna help us deconflict things further on down the road. It's gonna help us contextualize pilots. It's gonna help us um, really, uh, in, in kind of the words of the chief of staff, really ruthlessly prioritize uh, what we're going after. Um, you know, the, the demand for IT is infinite. Um, and so we really need to uh, focus and drill down on those areas that are gonna be of highest impact. Um, and so, you know, this roadmap product is going to be we hope, a key kind of guiding light uh, to be able to help us um, figure out where our funding priorities should be and where the kind of technical order of operations is going forward. Um, so we're really excited to put that together. Um, it's not something that there appears to be a, a true um, analog elsewhere. And so I think we're really kind of leading the way in the way that we are um, thinking about driving cohesion within those services. And you wrote on LinkedIn, I think the day you started this this new position, that you thought before you joined the Air Force that the road that they're on was directionally correct. Do you want to expand a little bit on, on what you meant by that? Sure. Uh, there are a lot of um, things uh, inside the Air Force that have um, the, the right foundation. There are places where we need to um, shore that up, uh, but it uh, there are efforts underway 
uh, that demonstrate that the Air Force recognizes the problems of modern IT. Um, so Steve Hazelhorst um, and Air Combat Command A6 is um, incredibly focused on zero trust, right? And we understand that as an organizing principle, um, zero trust is a lot of uh, other things associated with it. People are, are incredibly focused on uh, the ICAM pieces, uh, the innovations, uh, both on the technical and on the contractual side, um, alongside of Platform One, are incredibly important. And we're seeing its impacts um, really felt absolutely everywhere. Um, Air Force was first uh, really to adopt uh, Office 365, uh, uh, the as-a-service uh, Microsoft uh, collaboration suite, uh, Cloud One. Um, so there are a number of um, places where the Air Force has recognized where the industry is going and has kind of led the way. Uh, ITAS as well, at both as a, a contractual vehicle, but also as a service delivery model uh, for enterprise IT as a future. The Air Force started that. A lot of other services are, are continuing their experiments in it. And so the Air Force is, um, in a lot of ways, a, like to think a thought leader. There are many, many places where we can improve, um, but it is you know, I'm, I'm proud to be, you know, uh, kind of serving in this capacity and, and proud to kind of add momentum to the kind of pre-existing direction. Lots of uh, Air Force organizations that have a, a hand in enterprise IT. And, and the flip side of where we started, there, there not being any sort of statute to tell you what the job is. The flip side of that is there's no statute that that gives you authority to tell people to go do things. So it seems like one of this, well, this is one of these jobs where you're, you're going to be heavily reliant on building relationships and cooperation across the organization. What are those most important relationships look like to you as you as you start this job, and and how do you plan to kind of work through others? Uh, we've already uh, started down uh, the uh, getting to know people route, you know, in kind of my first hundred days here. Um, the five families are uh, key. A set of organizations uh, to get to know. Um, I'm uh, up in the Boston area, so I'm local to Hanscom um, in the H&I efforts, and so have already uh, gotten a chance to meet um, uh, ACCA6, uh, the Triple C, um, and hopefully going to make it down to San Antonio at some point next month. But uh, to understand each of their perspectives and um, each of the places where they are contributing uh, to the enterprise future um, is important. Uh, some of it um, from the outside was uh, admittedly a little bit opaque, but I have a, um, an excellent appreciation for the great work and the dedication that those individuals bring. That said, um, I also, it's important for me to think of myself kind of as a customer executive for enterprise IT. One of the key things the enterprise needs to export is credibility. You know, we want to take enterprise IT and have the continuum go from business systems all the way up through the high-end weapon systems. We want to be able to reduce the variance across the enterprise, um, enable people uh, to get more for uh, the uh, highly constrained uh, funding environment that we're in. And so that means uh, having to understand uh, the needs of PEO BES, which has a very wide uh, portfolio and has a lot of um, smaller mission systems all the way up through, um, uh, like I said, the weapon systems, the ABMSs of the world um, and GBSD, other large major programs, and to be able to make sure that we're meeting uh, both of those needs. And so, um, again, kind of my first hundred days, uh, meeting those executives, meeting those key kind of lighthouse customers um, that we need to make sure that we are um, answering the mail for and really performing for is key. Like we understand as well that whenever somebody adopts an enterprise service, there is a natural trade-off between cost and perceived performance rather than, you know, rather than fielding a service that you control yourself and, 
um, and have direct influence on. And so we have to create the right service structures, um, be transparent about our roadmap um, to the previous point, uh, but also uh, make it so that we are uh, accountable to those incredibly important customers who are trying to get their mission done. That concept of sort of erasing the line between enterprise IT and warfighting IT is 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 a big one. And I'm not sure anyone in, in DOD has really even conceptualized how you do that well. What What's some of your early thinking about how, how that actually works in the real world? Because they have, I think, historically really been thought of as separate domains or disciplines. Yeah. Um, so the one thing I'll say is um, our adversaries don't think, don't think of uh, the designation any differently, right? And so you know, we have to make sure that uh, there are a number of systems, you know, we can't, um, we can't fly planes without logistic systems, we can't repair planes without business systems, right? There are things that support the total force. And while not every, uh, while not every application is the tip of the spear uh, for certain activities, we do need to understand that the network is a service that is provided to everybody that systems run on top of. Identity is a solution that everybody needs to have. As solutions get more complicated, have more requirements, have more things that they need to do, there is going to be a tendency to centralize or to have the enterprise bolster it. So there's a few strategies um, that we're thinking about for how uh, we get after that flattening. The first of which is to create service structures that those services consume. So things that are developer-friendly, API-driven, things that allow for SRE-like monitoring uh, capabilities, so trending, alerting, errors, latency, to have services that the consumers can independently monitor, can independently understand what's going on. Uh, that's going to be key. So as we get more sophisticated consumers, we'll have to meet those demands. The other thing is to is to be able to place uh, designations around enterprise services so that we understand how, whether or not certain enterprise services are acceptable as a, a sole provider whether or not um, certain services are acceptable as, as a series of federated providers where we manage the interoperability instead of like a, a loan service. And right now what we're trying to do is put thinking around um, the types of circumstances. Each of those uh, delivery strategies is important. And, and over time, the goal is to simply reduce the variance in the enterprise. And we understand that reducing the variance takes enablement structures. It takes teams that are going to help uh, people adopt those enterprise services. It's going to take the right financial backing and the right business uh, backend systems um, so that those systems can acquire those services and they're aligned with the financial goals of the Air Force. So there's a lot of things to think about. Um, We are trying to pull apart what makes an enterprise service an enterprise service today. The hope is that within a few months, we'll start to be able to publish some guidance around uh, what that looks like. Very interesting. Um, just to start to wrap us up here, Jay, there's going to be a huge learning curve, obviously, to this job, but you're not coming into it completely blind. I know you did a lot of support for the Air Force in your previous job at Akamai. You want to talk just a little bit about what you came into this job with in terms of experience with the Air Force and Enterprise IT writ large and uh, why you took the job? Yeah. Um, so I uh, I spent uh, my previous uh, 14 years at Akamai um, in a variety of roles, um, really the last uh, 10 or so directly uh, supporting the Air Force. Akamai is a, is, a, is a great place and there are a lot of lessons to learn um, from a company that that does you know, a, a huge percentage of traffic on the internet. And, and that first of which is, is Akamai is, is first and foremost a scaling company and to understand that they really think about um, scaling both in terms of organizations and in terms of technology um, in a in a very unique way. And I'm, I'm happy to bring those lessons forward. Um, that said, you know, I, I took this job uh, because I thought it was uh, again, I think it's the, the right place at the right time. 
to be able to help uh, push uh, the country forward. Um, I think it's an incredibly interesting um, mission set. I'm really inspired by Miss um, Kay's leadership uh, and um, what I think we're going to be able to accomplish in the next few years. That's Jay Bonsi, the Air Force's new chief technology officer. Earlier in the show, we spoke with Heidi Hsu, the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, about her priorities. If you missed that conversation, we'll post this week's full program at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. Also find us in your favorite podcast app. Subscribe on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. That's it for this week's edition of On DOD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DOD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.